in sports medicine, we talk of this thing called load management, which is effectively sort of the, the, the concept that there's a relationship between load and injury risk, but also a relationship between load and adaption, meaning sort of improvement, performance improvements. Um, and there's some margin, there's a trade-off between what's your injury risk and what's the adaption that you're looking to get. And I think that's true in everything. Surely you can do something that's a lot less stressful than trying to build uh, a very valuable company. You also will not get the results that, are then, that the stress of doing that sort of bring with them. Uh, worth noting here, of course, that, that that isn't for everyone and that certainly people have uh, Silicon Valley is littered with or is paved with the, the broken dreams of people doing exactly what we're trying to do. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today, my guest was Martin Perman, the CEO of Pelion. I'll let him explain more about what they do. It's very interesting. And it was really great to talk with Martin today. I love the interdisciplinary nature of what we're talking about. And just to remind everybody, uh, I do try to find experts on this show, but I also value uh, the answers of non-experts. And Martin is clear when he's not an expert in something, he says that, and I really appreciate that. And I think you should look for other people who do that because that's a sign that somebody is humble. Um, and so I look for experts, but sometimes I really value the answers of non-experts. And if you want to understand why I think that way, go ahead and read the book Range uh, by David Epstein. Um, to be interdisciplinary, you have to be humble because you often find yourselves in places where you have no idea what's going on and you're constantly a beginner. Um, and that's a really valuable place to be. Uh, and so I, and that's, that's, if somebody's willing to guess, that means that they're willing to be wrong. Um, and the only way that you can really m improve your knowledge is to make it explicit and then make it able to be f to fail. Um, and so I really appreciate that, that Martin does that here. Um, I try to do that as well. And I hope all of you as well do as, as well. So... If you enjoy this podcast, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or whatever place that you normally listen to podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe. And if you really like it, I'd really appreciate giving a review on iTunes. Um, it would mean a lot to me. And as always, I'm on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Uh, you can DM me. Uh, my DMs are open. Uh, please send me your thoughts on this episode or any of the other, other episodes I've published. Uh, have a great day. Thank you. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today, my guest is Martin Perman. He is the CEO of Pelion, uh, and I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So today, we're going to talk a lot about a lot of different stuff, but uh, the new theme that I'm covering on the show is the uh, basically the rise of technology businesses outside of Silicon Valley, and I'm really interested to hear why you chose LA uh, to start your company and uh, what the thinking is behind that? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, to be completely frank, did not choose Los Angeles as much as Los Angeles sort of chose me. Um, for my last job, I worked at a company that sold, inter or sold mainly to the entertainment business. So all of our customers were here. I moved down here, what, four years ago, maybe five years ago, um, and uh, met my now fiance. And so I'm sort of uh, tethered here for those reasons, he's a screenwriter. So we are, uh, we're sort of tethered to, to Los Angeles for that reason. As it happens, I think in the, in the interim, Los Angeles has developed into a wonderful place to build a startup. So everything has worked out pretty well. 
So um, what is the biggest challenge that you face so far from moving to LA? Or sorry, that from being in LA and starting your company there? Um, I don't know that we have yet faced any challenges. The sort of the inherently large challenges of scaling a, or building a startup anywhere but the, but the Bay Area don't really take effect until you're trying to scale, which is what's hard. Having ideas is just as easy outside of the area, outside of the Bay as within and so forth. Um, potentially we've had um, a slightly harder time raising money than we would have had if we had been native to SF, um, but not to an extent that it's been problematic at all. Hmm. And have, have you guys, are you guys raising money? Have you already raised money? Uh, yes, we've, we've raised a good, uh, uh, sort of a pre-seed round and, and are looking to raise a seed round in the, in the sort of midterm future. Nice. And yeah, that's an interesting point because in something I'm investigating, I'm actually going to investigate it particularly in one location around the world that there is this move towards distributed nature of work. Are you guys remote? Um, we're a hybrid remote. Okay. Uh, and so there's this move towards distributed work, and then there's also these other things that are arising outside of that as well, which is the um, digital nomad type of freelancer situation. So I'm going to actually go to one of these hotspots, Medellin. I think there's three main hotspots in the world. There's Medellin, Chiang Mai, and Bali, uh, which is kind of the the hubs of these digital nomad. And I imagine most of the people there aren't doing really aren't trying to create high growth companies but i do expect there's probably going to be about one percent one to percent to five percent of people there doing that uh, but then what you bring up is interesting because there is a you don't actually need to be in silicon valley to start that process you can do that anywhere now um, but in order to get to the actual growth stage maybe after you've reached gone from zero to one do you think that it's necessary to actually go to silicon valley to do that um, I think the burden of proof is certainly on those who say that building a billion dollar company anywhere else is possible. Mm. Um, that's the sort of diplomatic, diplomatic way of putting that. Um, you can certainly try to build a, uh, a billion dollar company outside of the Bay area. Um, and it might to some extent be possible. We've certainly seen it happen. I, it's not clear to me that the extent to which it's happened so far are not sort of false positives. And I guess this is an open inquiry for myself as well. How would you go about figuring out whether it is a false positive? Like the, I just talked to somebody in Romania today and they had a, I think it's the open AI path or AI, I think the company's called AI path is like a $7 billion company that was started in Romania. Yep. And so I want to understand how can, we analyze these companies to figure out whether it is a false positive, basically. Yeah, I mean, running the, the counterfactual there is always hard or, or impossible. Um, I think the really good thing is that history will prove this for us. Mm. Um, for better or worse, smart people exist all over the world and they can't all be in SF. So they will try to build billion dollar companies outside of SF. And at some rate, that will be successful. Uh, it's hard to say how many of those would have been successful anywhere in the world, how many people were not successful, but would have been if they were in SF and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, that two by two is really hard to, to draw up. I think, um, I think in the past five or so years, 
we have in the tech industry is a whole sort of muddled together um, the digital nomad thing, which I think has has merits and is and seems like a wonderful lifestyle with uh, building billion dollar companies just because they share the the commonality of people writing code. Um, and I think those are not necessarily the same thing. Mm. That's very interesting. And it also goes into a common thing that I think was that was also a misinterpretation on a lot of people's part, which was that uh, small businesses are the same same thing as startups. Uh, that if you're starting a hair salon, uh, that you're a, somehow a startup. And in a sense, you, you I mean, you are an entrepreneur, but you aren't doing a high growth company, which a startup would be, right? Yes, those are totally different things. As uh, I think, I think the Paul Graham definition of a of a startup uh, sort of uh, separates those two pretty evenly. Interesting. And then, so that randomly gave me a new thought, and I want to go into that, which is that I w- I've been thinking a lot about how the early computing industry in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. Um, they had journalists and they had a lot of people covering this stuff. And then that random thought came into my mind was that Paul Graham, because you're the third conversation I'm having today and all of them have been remote and all of them have been uh, outside of San Francisco. And I think in all three conversations, Paul Graham came up um, (laughs) and, and, and it's because he wrote these essays and they weren't part of a kind of formalized media uh channel it was just him writing a blog uh and then that turned into yc and then and then yc became a brand so in a sense it did become a media outlet almost um but it's really interesting because this is something that i'm starting to think a lot about about the nature of a podcast as well because people have been when i ask them for interviews they they have been saying oh i don't talk to the press or, you know, if uh, for press media inquiries, uh, go talk to this person. And it's really surprising me because I've never ever considered myself part of the press or part of the media. Um, <laughs> and then, but they, but I am now, I guess, in that for, for that's their perception of me. Um, and it's really interesting because I have no idea what to do with that. Cause I don't feel like I'm part of the media. Um, uh, I don't really have a specific question on that, but well, uh, okay. Let, let, let me pick up that thread then. I yeah. think that, what it seems to me that you're getting at is that there's this, at least on the surface, it seems like there's a an inverse relationship between the size of your audience and the candor that you can get your guests to speak mm-hmm. with. Um, so Paul Graham said something that in retrospect were slightly controversial to how we built startup at the time. Um, because he spoke to a niche audience, because there was no sort of, no stakes for him saying so, he was already successful. Mm. Um, podcasts are a wonderful medium specifically because they feel like salons or they feel like uh, they don't feel like the press. Um, for, for the same reason, if you go to one of these like large tech events, uh, Disrupt or, or Code or any of these things, uh, Bill Gates will be talking or Brian Chesky will be talking or someone else will be talking. I uh, was, was the CEO of a billion dollar company and they consistently will fail to say anything remotely interesting. Uh, <laughs> whereas you can listen to, to this podcast or some other podcast that has even a tenth of this listener of your audience. Um, and the content might end up being a lot more interesting. Yeah. And it's the, it's this long tail and I'm kind of actually enjoying that, which is that I feel like I'm getting some signal out there and I kind of feel like I'm mostly on, uh, I'm actually enjoying the fact that I'm, that I'm mostly 
that I'm, I'm just under the radar. Uh, and there's this fine line because, you know, I'm, I might be lucky enough to actually go or maybe unlucky enough to, to go get on the radar. And then a whole other host of problems kind of arise from that. Um, and, but it's fun. I, I enjoy being under the radar. And then I'm in this kind of special time as well because of, of, I think it's specifically Twitter, but it also happens on LinkedIn and Facebook, which is that everybody is findable. And I'm, I'm curious, this might also impact your business. Um, everybody is findable. Everybody is out there and most of them are open to talking. Um, and I'm in this weird kind of time where I started doing this and that I'm like, I just reach out to people and people say yes. And then it's, it's weird. And I don't <laughs> think that would have, would have happened a few years ago. And I'm curious what you think about this. Yeah. I mean, for most of us, I think it's true that the most interesting conversations we've ever listened to had an audience of one, mm. right? They're one-to-one -one conversations. Um, podcasts, I think, at least to some extent, can scale that. Mm. Um, I think to shamelessly plug my own company, Pelion, sort of one of the key insights there is that, sure, you can learn a lot about how to do your job by reading blog posts and online courses. Um, and YouTube videos of people who are good at that same job. Um, what is also true, though, is that all of those sort of one-to-many forms of communication have gone through the filter of what am I allowed to say publicly mm -hmm. um, or, or what is correct for me to say publicly. Um, and I think uh, for, it's true for most people that if you reflect on the best advice, the best career advice you've ever gotten, it tends to have come from someone that you were talking to one-on-one -on -one rather than from a podcast or from a blog post and so forth. Um, just from, from, from that, for that reason, um, I, I think one trick that some podcasters are using to their advantage is keeping the content of the podcast separate from the subject matter of the guests' daily lives. Um, so if Elon Musk goes on, on Joe Rogan, not that I'm, a, not that I'm a, an avid listener of that show, uh, the conversation is not around Tesla stock price, but around comic books or, or Rick and Morty or whatever they talked about. I didn't actually listen to that interview. Um, Tyler Cowen does something equally interesting in which he tends to talk to um, people about things that aren't the same questions as uh, those people are normally asked, which means that there's no sort of canned answer from the guests. Um, I think that will sort of allow you to um, keep the intimacy of the one-on-one -on -one conversation, even at, at sort of larger audience scales in podcasting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And then your insight is that one-on-one -on -one kind of conversations are the most beneficial or effective and that you want to facilitate those. Um, I don't know if that's our key or if our main insight, but it's certainly one. What um, is your main insight? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think the, the secret of Pelion, that is not at all a secret, otherwise I wouldn't be saying it here, um, <laughs> is that if you're building an educational company for the 21st century or in 2019, or at least if you're building it to last for 50 or 100 years, I don't believe that you should ever own supply. You shouldn't have syllabus. You shouldn't publish books. You shouldn't have a lot of teachers on staff simply because the demands from the labor market 
the sort of skill-specific demands from the labor market are changing so quickly mm. that you won't be able to reinvent yourself fast enough to keep up with the market. Um, one of the things that we talk a lot about internally is the fact that the half-life of professional skills is getting so short that teachers now have to be current operators. Any, anything else and you'll be outdated too quickly. This is true in most sort of white collar jobs in which the tooling changes quickly and the stack changes quickly. It not, it's not necessarily true for, for say a lawyer um, in which the, the subject matter is a much sort of more glacial um, and sort of has a much more glacial turnover. Um, but I think that's true for almost all white collar jobs. Um, and I think there's nobody really, everyone is sleeping on that a little bit. I'm for that reason, not super bullish on, on coding boot camps because it doesn't seem exactly clear to me what those boot camps who invested heavily in being able to teach one thing really well, how they act once that thing is no longer relevant. Mm. This is a very interesting thing. I kind of almost want to go back to the, the insight and secret thing because it sounds like you've also read zero to one, which I imagine a lot of probably listeners have, <laughs> uh, and that this, these secrets are out in plain sight, but it's the connection between the secret and the action that, that creates the, the value. Um, but then what you just said is really interesting as well about supply and changing things so quickly. And it makes me think that the, there, but there are timeless skills. And I think those are reading, writing, and a few other ones I'm forgetting right now, but and uh, arithmetic and, and maybe yeah. basic science sort of scientific literacy. Yep, yeah. interesting. And I nobody I don't know anybody teaching those. And this is actually an idea I've had for a while, which is like an online course for how to um, read scientific literature because it's I I don't know how to do it, and I want to figure out how to do it. So I want to get somebody else to teach me how to do it. Yeah, uh, I think <laughs> I think that's that's entirely true. Uh, Huh, yeah, I wonder how, how the rest of us learned that, probably just by doing it a lot. But I think there are interesting examples that you, that you bring up um, from sort of reading and writing to arithmetic and, and, and scientific literacy, um, specifically because those are things that have gotten commoditized, right? And it's sort of the simple market dynamics is that all knowledge that, or all teaching that can't be commoditized will be, mm. and at a price point that sort of approaches zero. Mm. Um, the, I very firmly believe that the educational products we'll see thrive in the next 20 or 50 years are ones that are ultra specific mm. um, and have very narrow audiences. And um, you can sort of have these end of one businesses that do that. I think there's a couple of interesting sort of Twitter based examples of that uh, Tiago Forte's thing and, and uh, your own to some extent, uh, David Perel's teaching courses and so forth are this to sort of that personal range around range around one teacher. I don't believe you can turn those into billion dollar companies, mm. um, but the billion dollar company that you can create, is a hub of those, which is what we're trying to build. Mm. That is interesting. Why are you set on starting a billion dollar company? Wow, that's a good question. I don't have a, f oh, I should be careful what I say because he <laughs> listens to these things. Um, I don't, <laughs> I'll go out and live here and see that I don't have a strong attachment to building a billion dollar company. That sort of marker seems arbitrary to me. What I do have a strong commitment to is fundamentally changing the career path for talented people um, at a large and global scale. And I happen to believe 
that doing so will, as a pleasant side effect, yield a billion dollar company. Mm. So essentially create so much value uh, for your specific market that, and, and that the money is, is a byproduct of that. Correct. There, yeah, I, I don't know if the, I try to not think too much in those terms at least. Hmm. And this is, what is the stress then associated with that? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, so my, my interpretation of stress might be slightly different from, the, from most people's. Um, I tend to think of stress in the sort of literal sense as a, as a stressor that helps your system of any kind adapt and improve. Um, generally, I find that the stress of trying to build a billion dollar company is on net beneficial. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't bad days and there aren't sleepless nights and so forth. There's plenty of those. Um, but on net, I think uh, it actually ends up being a very, very healthy stimulus that, that, that turns you or at least me into, uh, into a more sort of resilient human. Yeah. And that's that framework on viewing stress once I've adopted it has now actually helped me tremendously in um, experiencing it. But then there's always those times, like you said, the sleepless nights that occur. Uh, and it's just kind of like a general overarching framework that can help you put those into place because they're going to occur no matter what. Well, you could like, or the other option is you try to aim for no stress uh, and then go live on a beach somewhere. Um, and I tried that, uh, but that doesn't, you know, like you said, our systems are basically built on this function of like, there is stress and we adapt to stress and that tells us how to kind of move throughout the world and everything like that. Yeah. And I, I found that, that uh, tr trying to aim for that stress-free thing was just absolutely like totally vapid and worthless. Uh, yep. Yeah. And I, and I do think that there's sort of a baseline stress that your brain will just create if, if you don't sort of seek it out for yourself. Mm. Um, you'll create internally. I, I'm, a, I'm an avid runner and I tend to think, think uh, of a lot of things in, in running analogies for, for better or worse. Um, in running, we, we or in sort of in, in sports medicine, we talk of this thing called load management, which is effectively sort of the, the, the concept that there's a relationship between load and injury risk, but also a relationship between load and adaption, meaning sort of improvement, performance improvements. Um, and at some margin, there's a trade-off between what's your injury risk and what's the adaption that you're looking to get. Mm. Um, and I think that's true in everything. Mm -hmm. um, surely you can do something that's a lot less stressful than trying to build a, a, a very valuable company. Um, you also will not get the results that, are then, uh, that the stress of doing that mm. um, um, sort of bring with them. Uh, worth noting here, of course, that that, that isn't for everyone. And that certainly people have uh, Silicon Valley is littered with uh, or is paved with the, the broken dreams of people doing exactly what we're trying to do. And um, that's so it's that's, not that we're immune to the risk. That's that's it. I think that's we've now isolated the, the spirit of Silicon Valley, which is that uh, you look for exponential returns on a fixed investment. Um, so and that does seem I mean, that, that's definitely the VC philosophy is that you invest in an early stage, you accept the risk that nine out of the 10 things you invest in are going to go out. But then that one investment that you make in that one company, uh, 
leads to exponential results. And you see this throughout the thinking of Silicon Valley, which is like, how do I make those same exponential returns in, t- in, in terms of uh, wellness or health or all these different things? Um, and which, you know, which leads into the biohacking. I did an interview with uh, the head of the Qualia Research Institute out of Stanford, which is trying to um, measure qualia and qualia is the conscious perception we have over any particular thing so when i look at a cup a blue cup my consciousness becomes flavored with that blue cup um when i'm having a conversation with you my consciousness becomes flavored with with your thoughts and then vice versa Uh, and so and then they're trying to get trying to build the mathematics behind pleasure and pain you know pleasure and pain being these two kind of overarching categories of of qualia um, and a lot of what they're trying to do is find these exponential happiness states uh, and and then quantify how you can get to them, uh, which is pretty contrarian because a lot of people kind of believe that there's there's a certain amount of pain that's necessary. And what they're saying is, no, that's not true. We can get to this pleasure and we're going to actually engineer it. Um, yeah, but- I mean, heroin works great for that, right? I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I, I do wonder if that's the right question well, to be asking. So, so. And and I would say that there is a qualitative difference between the opioid system and heroin and psychedelics. Um, Sure. (laughs) So uh, bliss, and there's a difference between pleasure and bliss. Uh, And I think that this is what we actually talked about. It's been a few months ago, but uh, the, 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 that uh, temporary pleasures are probably not going to get you anywhere, but bliss is actually an, uh, pro-social pro-productive thing if if as long as it's uh, under a certain degree of bliss because there are some blissful states that are that are you just like uh, a prime example being Eckhart Tolle uh, who sat on a bench for two years in a blissed out state in London uh, and didn't really do anything just because he was blissed out all the time uh, it's getting this conversation is getting weird quickly but uh but no, uh, no, no to be honest I uh, I read the power of now when I was a, a sort of a, a tween or a young teenager and um, had a viscerally negative reaction to it uh, for that exact same reason. Um, I, d- I don't sort of have a have an object level objection to sort of uh, any any philosophy that which ultimate conclusion is wire sort of wire heading, but mm. um, but it doesn't on the margin seems like a like a valuable thing to pursue for the average person. I believe. Mm. Interesting. Can you go more into that? Um. I, I don't spend a lot of my sort of brain cycles thinking in these terms. So, so, um, so you'll excuse me if I, uh, if I sound less than, than articulate on this, but it doesn't seem to me that there's a very clear path to states of bliss um, or, or whatever, whatever sort of de- description um, is the synonym for that. Um, and until that is the case, it doesn't seem clear to me that those are things worth pursuing for people who don't have a sort of a, a, an extra intense need for them. Mm. Interesting. Um, perhaps, or, or I might just be living my life in a, in a sort of a, an unnecessary state of suffering. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but it seems like that, like for many generations of humanity and, and, and our ancestors before that, uh, that has been the case. So if I'm the last generation to do that, I, I think I'm, I'm okay with Interesting. And this gets into another kind of teaching, which I brought up in that interview with the quality research is that 
uh, for a lot of traditions that talk about this, because it's not only like this this bliss state isn't necessarily only done by the wireheading that you mentioned, which is this 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 engineering of these states. Well, in a sense, they thousands of years ago they did engineer them through practices and techniques and inquiry and all of this different stuff. Uh, but one of the teachings from those thousand-year-old tradition is that the mind, if you, the goal can never be bliss. The goal has to be truth. Um, and if your con- mind is continuously on truth, uh, bliss might be a byproduct. But as soon as the goal then becomes the bliss, then you get lost again. And so then it becomes a redirection towards that that the, the truth. And you know that's a deep conversation, long conversation. About. Right, right. And, and on the face of it, that sounds like a circular argument to me, or at least one that I'm that I'm not sort of willing to invest the time in, in trying to trying to pick apart for myself. Uh, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 at least I would think so. That's interesting. Can you explain more why it seems circular? Um, oh, this is, uh, this is, this is, uh, this is a minefield to walk through, but um but if you seek something that cannot that you cannot reach by seeking that thing itself the path that you'll follow will necessarily be sort of unknowable yeah. um and every time i hear an argument to that to that effect from um whether it be uh whether it be sort of Christian in nature of 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 of, uh, of God's ways are unknowable or 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 more Eastern, my sort of bullshit meter goes off at an alarming rate. Um, not necessarily because there's no secret there that I just cannot comprehend. I'm not at all sort of leaving that out of the realm of possibilities, uh, but just because there's nothing for me to do with that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps at a later stage in life, the prime focus will be uh, for me will be. Uh, reaching reaching nirvana or some some other such thing uh but for now that just doesn't seem like a like an actually practical thing to do interesting um, i do think that like it's not that like seeking truth is, is what most of us do i think in the sort of the mm-hmm. in the startup world right we're trying to see see things that are true that other people don't see and then make the rest of the world realize um and i think to the extent that like seeking truth means uh means realizing that what is true is already so and owning up to it doesn't change it. Uh, then I'm very on board with that notion. Um, but as long as sort of, but then there's a very clear sort of goal in, in truthfulness, uh, which which then is not circular. Mm. And I want to bring up a point that I was coming that I was thinking about as we were talking about, which is that uh, for me, this particular thing came about through being in quite a bit of pain and wanting to get out of that pain. And I think that's that's where it becomes applicable for most people um, uh, is, is, is these, these types of questions um, that at least wanting to escape from the pain. Uh, and then, you know, realizing that, that uh, substances don't really help for that. And, uh, and then is there a actual transformation that occur, can occur that will, but then again, it gets back to that circular argument. Cause if it's the truth of it is that, there is pain in this moment and there is no way to get out of it, but that gets into the nature of suffering and pain and that, that pain is a fact of life. And, but suffering is the kind of attachment or the add on 
effect of making a story out of that pain, uh, which then hurts us twice, basically. Yeah, exactly. I, to bring it back to sort of to the sports medicine world, just because that's a this is sort of a, an obvious analogy for that. There's a whole branch of sports medicine or or, or medicine in general sort of that focuses on pain science. Um, the perhaps best sort of area of, of study to look at there is is uh, back pain, or specifically lower back pain, mm-hmm. for which it seems that uh, that we have interventions that are sort of educational about the nature of pain that perform roughly as well in a majority of cases as surgery for lower back pain. Mm. Um, that seems to have spurred this whole new world of, well, if you're in pain, you should just sort of acknowledge that that's okay and live on with it uh, as though sort of pathology and pain are not at all, uh, not at all are in, in a causal relationship. Um, we've sort of, we've taken the lesson of, um, of correlation does not mean causation in, in, uh, in lower back pain and then sort of extrapolated that notion onto all other areas of pain, which to me just seems like escapism or seems like giving up on the actual goal of, well, there's pathologies and sometimes we want to mint those to make people healthy again. Mm. Um, I, I have similar reactions to the school of, of, uh, of thoughts in, in, in psychiatry and in, uh, and in psychology that sort of preach similar things. Interesting. Sounds like you might have read or you might enjoy reading um, the book of why. Have you have you come across that yet? I read a I read the highlights, the okay. Kindle highlights. <laughs> yeah, the, in that book, the author talks about how within this the scientific field, the there was an overemphasis on not even attempting to get to a question of causality. Uh, and only focusing on essentially correlation and correlation does not equal causation. And we can't even answer that causation piece. Um, and then, uh, and then the, the, the author makes the argument that that was an oversight and there are things that we can do to actually get to the why. And one of them is this counterfactual thing that you mentioned previously about, about, um, startups that didn't succeed versus those that did. Uh, and, uh, the whole book, it goes into the, the book of why essentially it's how to actually answer that question of why which I find really interesting. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I, I don't know if I do either. No, um, <laughs> no I, I, I mean, uh, I mean, sort of epistemology is hard. Mm. Um, epistemology in practice is even harder. Um, and uh, knowing when to be sort of, when to enforce a, a high level of epistemic hygiene in your thinking and when not to, I think mm. is, is always a challenge. Um, and it's probably good for your mental health to just accept that there are some things that, that uh, without serious effort are unknowable to you. And you should probably just accept whatever seems, seem, sort of common sense is probably right. Um, which, is, which is sort of the, the everyday uh, practice of Occam's Razor, right? Uh-huh. And also it brought to mind the serenity prayer, actually, um, which I'm probably going to butcher, but I'll try it anyway, which is... Uh, God grant me the strength to change the things I cannot, the, the strength to change the things I can, uh, the, uh, I'm butchering it. And then the, there's a wisdom part. And then, so it's basically means like, yeah. And, and, the, and the wisdom to, to, to accept those I can't. Um, yeah. Y- yeah, no, exactly. Um, and, 
and there's sort of an heroic element to that, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think there's a story that you can tell about every successful startup founder of all time, uh, sort of disagreeing with that, right? And uh, and disagreeing with what things are uh, belong to which category of that pair, right? Um, I think that's true for most people who do anything meaningful is sort of realizing that some things fall in the bucket of things that you can change, which were up until that point believed to fall in the bucket of things that you should accept as such, right? And this, this brings into the, na the, the nature of time and, and how change is constant and that time creates new opportunities, but it's always the challenge to figure out what opportunities have been opened up by time. And for me, it's becoming incre increasingly clear that time is also connected with change, the technological change, uh, and that the more time that goes, the more technology is created, and the more that technology impacts our everyday lives, and the more opportunity opens up, and also the more challenges and chaos that it opens up as well. This is a great question for you. What, what is, as we sit in 2019, looking for the next five years, what, in your opinion, what challenges will we face from technology and what opportunities will we face for from technology in the next five years wow um while i work in tech i'm not a technologist mm. um and i don't i i think predictions are hard mm. um i that's hard to answer without sort of ha having a more narrow focus. But I do believe that the sort of the, the arc of technological progress is long, but it does spend toward towards AGI or like towards, towards mm. all matter becoming conscious at some point. Um, mm. And while um, and five year time horizons are hard because the iterative cycles of truly world-changing tech are longer or about that time, which means that uh, the things that are being developed that are just sort of being conceived today technologically, uh, that will change the world. We won't see in that period of time, right? Um, so the real question is, what are the things that were conceived five years ago that will come to fruition in the next five years? Mm. Um, we certainly have big things to figure out with, with uh, genetic engineering. Um, I think we have sort of, as uh, as humanity, we have large uh, decisions to make there that I fear that we will not get to make because they're sort of going to be made by the lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. um, they sort of, uh, they, sadly, those decisions don't have to be made as a consensus. They have to be, or uh, sort of in a democratic fashion, they happen to just be made by whichever lab decide that, uh, that, uh, that this is how they want to do things. And then the competitive pressure becomes high enough that, that they force the hand of everybody else. Uh, so I fear that dealing with that is going to be our, one of our large challenges for the next uh, few decades. Interesting. You mentioned something really interesting I want to dig into more, which is that all matter becoming conscious. <laughs> and I'd love to understand more about where that comes from, because I had never heard that before. Um, and now it makes sense. I mean, yeah, we'd have to get into what is consciousness and 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 all that stuff. But. Um, yeah, sure. I don't. I don't think you really need a, a good definition of consciousness to to make that argument. And and I'm to be honest, I'm I'm not sort of a an, an AI ethicist to any to any extent. But the basic argument there is that uh, say you build an AGI and you optimize it, uh, its utility function is for um, is for optimizing 
the amount of what looks like human consciousness or, or, um, or consciousness. Um, assuming that it's a self-improving AGI, at some point that leads, just because of the sort of exponential nature of, of, of improving a system, that leads to all of matter in the universe becoming, or all energy in the universe becoming conscious. Right? Uh, um, yeah. It's sort of the natural conclusion of that argument. Mm. Because then that system will then seek resources in order to uh, uh, fill its mandate or goal uh, and then bring in the whole, all of the matter gets put into this kind of function that, uh, that his goal is to emulate human consciousness. Yep. And, and you, and you want to, like, you can build a paperclip optimizer or you can build a, a human consciousness optimizer, right? Um, on balance, I'd probably rather choose the latter, uh, but the sort of uh, not, not even the, the big decision of our lifetimes or our generation, but the big decision of humanity, I think, or not even decision, the, the big, struggle of humanity is, uh, do we get that right or no? Hmm. Um, Interesting. Again, not my field of, not, <laughs> not my field of expertise. If you were to suggest somebody to talk to about that, who would that be? Um, I mean, Elisa Yudkowsky would be the obvious choice. Um, Robin Hanson, perhaps. Um, Ray Kirchwell is, is, is the sort of uh, real obvious choice. Um, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a, a, a couple of few good paths you can go down there. Uh, um, the, the, a good place to start reading would be the, am I going to get the name right here? The, the Yudkowsky Hansen uh, AI forum debate of some year that I have hence since forgotten. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, but that should be available on Amazon or for free somewhere else. I'm sure. That's very cool. It reminds me of a, of a cyberpunk book I once read, uh, which is a masterpiece and now I've forgotten the name of it. Uh, and it talked about, about that and, and about how this guy had a pet cat and the pet cat was actually an AGI and the whole time the, he was, the cat was, had a better theory of mind about its owner and was playing him the whole time <laughs> <laughs> when it was just a cat. Uh, it, was, it went into a lot of that stuff. It was, it was really interesting. Um, right. Um, yeah, it's a, a mice in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, again, not not my expertise, and don't don't take my uh, my worthless gospel in in anything in that in that field. Yeah, and so we got about 10, 15 minutes left, and the the I'd love to understand more from you. You said before we started recording about you had a unique insight into the LA tech scene, and I'd love to understand why you do or don't uh, kind of uh, view yourself as part of it or kind of engage with it. Oh, I don't know if I have a unique insight into uh into the la tech scene i think i might have a sort of a, a unique take uh <laughs> um nouns aside i community uh, success because people like to feel sort of aligned with the people around them mm. with what they're working on i tend to thrive in a world in which the people around me don't work on things that are similar to what i work on um not the people at work mind you but but sort of the rest of my social circles um i, I like to sort of um uh, keep a social circle of people who work on fundamentally different things than what I do, or I would go insane by uh, talking to, about technology all day um, or education or <laughs> didactic things all day. Um, uh, so I think LA is quite wonderful for having a high level of, of um, what's, the, what's the correct way of saying this, the, a high level of sort of intellectual pursuit uh, that is not in the direction of tech. Mm. Um, I quite enjoy spending time with people who work in entertainment um or at least some subset of them 
um, um, because the sort of uh, the level of of of, of discourse, discourse is quite high, whilst not being around tech, which it has seemed true for the past um, call it ten or twenty years, that the the brightest minds in the world gravitate gravitate towards tech, and for good reasons. Um, entertainment has an interesting property in the people who work in entertainment do so, or at least for the most part, because they simply could not work on anything else. Like they care so much about it uh, that they couldn't work on anything else. This is why uh, entertainment has such a weird, or to, uh, to, to those, those mm -hmm. of us outside of tech, it's such a weird uh, uh, tradition with sort of unpaid interns and so forth. And people work for 10 years as assistants before getting a writing job for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, sort of levels of uh, tolerance of, of uh, suffering that we in tech or in professional services or any other industry would just completely scowl at. Um, but because the passion is so high in entertainment, uh, those things are possible. And I really enjoy sort of uh, surrounding myself with people who are that passionate, even if the, if the, the, the subject of their passion is different from mine. That is really interesting because it, I keep on saying the word interesting. I want to change that, but uh, the, you've got entertainment and people so passionate about it that they're willing to work for 10 years without getting paid in it. Why is entertainment so, it, it, and it, it's so many people want to do it. Like that's, you know, the story of the last 50 years is people moving to Hollywood in order to make it big. Um, and now that is almost happening in, in tech in certain ways. And, you know, it, it can happen in a lot of different ecosystems to a smaller degree, but Hollywood does seem like that is the world kind of like coming for that entertainment. And why do people get so passionate about it? Good. It's a really good question. Um, I don't know if I have a real answer to it other than um, Hollywood takes up a disproportionate amount of attention in the world um, for the subset of people who are motivated by gaining attention. It's just the highest return on investment thing to do. Mm. Um, uh, that would be my guess, but I, to be honest, don't know. The other sort of a, a little cynical answer is that if you spend the first, um, if you spent the first two decades of your, your sort of your teens and your twenties, um, mastering the craft of, 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 of storytelling or, or some other art in Hollywood, uh, you don't necessarily come out with a lot of skills that are applicable anywhere else. Um, entertainment, the entertainment industry operates so differently, vastly differently from any other industry, maybe short of, of, of tech or at least venture capital, uh, that your skills are not super, super transferable. Um, unless you also happen to be, uh, to just be incredibly smarter mm. or something else. Mm. So, oh, this is a good question. What are the skills that are transferable and what are the skills that are not transferable and how will that change over the next, uh, given that predictions are hard to make? <laughs> Out, like uh, the skills in general or the skills from entertainment? Uh, let's do skills in technology or skills that are, the, the question I want to get to is like why, as, as technology makes a larger impact in what skills are, are the, in the churn of skills that are necessary, what is the effect of that? And how can people get an insight into that so that they don't fall into the machine? Yes. Um, so the other big secret of Pelion is that automation eats jobs in order of how many bits it takes to describe that, how to do that job. Mm. 
Um, so if we look at something like accounting, which all happens in a spreadsheet or largely, it all happens in sort of in, in, in idea space. It's, it's a bounded environment. Um, it doesn't take a whole lot of bits to describe it. And we can sort of squint and see it being automated completely away. Um, or look at pilot and see, see what, how much of their work is digital and how much of it is, is human powered. Um, if we look at accounting, there's not a big tradition of mentorship. If you, on the other end of the spectrum, take something like carpentry, um, which is historically a, a, a very mentorship heavy industry. Uh, you learn carpentry by apprenticeships, right? Uh, and you have for, for a long, long time. Um, it takes many more bits to describe how to be a good carpenter, just because the variance of task is much higher and it happens both in meat space and in, in, in idea space. Mm. Um, so it seems to us that automation eats jobs roughly in order of how important mentorship is to learning them. So a big insight for us is that as automation eats jobs, and as we know, jobs are not actually, <laughs> automation doesn't actually eat jobs, at least not yet. New jobs are just created, right? It pushes the workforce into jobs that are harder and harder for machines to do. Those happen to be the ones that are very mentorable. Um, just because the nuance and the complexity is high enough that you need a friendly, the friendly learning environment of a person explaining, you how to, explaining to you how to do something in real time, uh, rather than learning it from a book or, uh, or an app or something else. Hmm. Which kind of explains the rise, at least in my own behavior and a lot of other people and some of the interviews I just did earlier today explain it as well, which is the rise of uh, me just going on YouTube in order to find out a, about, I'm, I'm in particular interested about uh, massage and body work and what actually happens at a physiological level What once people do massage or body work on me or, or I do it on other people. And uh, YouTube just kind of has these really great videos that people have uploaded about the latest evidence and stuff like that. And going back again to that scientific um, literacy of reading studies, which I'm also finding out there's a paywall issue as well, which is that I can only get the access to the abstract. So uh, but then, <clears throat> yeah, <What>? yes. <laughs> which somebody told me about yesterday. Uh, but, uh, and then, uh, and then, so, but that, and that's, that's really interesting because it gives you the, the insights from the people doing the research. And so you kind of trust them a little bit more, but then for something like, let's try to find an example of Starting, yeah, starting a company uh, in 2019 in um, education space will we'll take your company, like how to find those mentors. I bet that's actually been helpful for you because you can reach out to these people. Are you using your own service at all to help you start this company? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the way the Pelion works is that you pay a mentor a, a portion of your salary. So you pay either 4% of your current salary, 6% of some future salary um, to, a, to a, one of several mentors. Uh, the downside of building this company as a founder is that my salary is artificially low because I want to use the money that my company has to pay other people because mm. uh, I myself get compensated mainly in equity, right? Um, uh, so often my mentorship relationships are people who have invested in our company. Um, mm. Just because of that dynamic. But, but both my co-founder Holger and I and, and everyone who works for us uh, rely on mentorship heavily to do our jobs. Another way to, uh, I'm not actually a super big fan of the word mentorship. 
uh, I sometimes try to use sort of operator coach um, or operator teacher, um, which is uh, mentorship sounds like this like abstract thing and, and, and uh, sort of like a, a generalized, what should I do in my life sort of thing. But I use mentors for a lot of very, very specific tooling issues or tactic issues rather than strategy or sort of personal management issues. How, what have you learned recently about how to, how to influence people that they want to actually use your, your product or your service? Um, <laughs> what have I learned recently? Uh, so, so we're fairly young, um, which means that, uh, as a company, I mean, uh, which means that we sort of keep learning things from users who signed up a few months ago. Uh, one of the interesting things right now that we see is that the more you pay uh, for a mentor, the more likely you are to rate that mentorship as valuable. Um, it seems like accountability is a really big thing to solve. We're hoping that we're doing it for people who tend to learn things online. Uh, for 20 years, we've been saying that, that uh, online education cheap and affordable and so forth will uh, kill the university system. It hasn't happened yet. My money is on one of the key things lacking is accountability, which leaves students with a last mile problem of, of, of sort of actually getting the work done and also of, of afterwards signaling to the rest of the world that they actually did the, did the work, um, which is what a diploma from a, from a named university is serving the purpose of right now. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but to answer your question sort of more, more thoroughly, I don't, um, we rarely have to convince anyone to come to Pelion and find a mentor. Our problem is not sort of on top line growth. It's more on finding the right mentor for people. Hmm. Um, uh, th that's sort of a luxury problem to have right now. Uh, and it's certainly at some point we're going to have to explain to, to people who've never, never considered this, uh, <laughs> that they should be doing it. But for now, there's a large influx of people who, have been looking for something similar mm. uh, that we're sort of meeting the, the needs of them for now. Very cool. Hey, that seems like a good time to, to wrap up. How can people find out more about you and Pelion? Um, they should first and foremost go to pelion.app and sign up, either as a mentor or as a mentee or both. Uh, about a third of our signups sign up to be both, which is really interesting. <laughs> um, uh, I am on Twitter, though not super active. Um, sort of a long time lurker, um, first time poster type type person. I'm at Permin, so that's P-U-R-R-M-I-N. It's a bastardization of my last name. Um, the company's Twitter handle is Pelion HQ, which has not been active yet, but will very much be so in the, in the immediate future. Very cool. And next conversation, we'll talk more about uh, the Copenhagen and the Danish uh, startup ecosystem. Wonderful. Thanks, Martin. Thanks. All right. Good chat to you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I am really excited to continue publishing episodes of this quality, and I will be publishing episodes every day, Monday through Friday. I've got, I have, I've now forgotten how many episodes I have in the backlog, and it's uh, harder and harder for me to keep up and figure out which ones are uh, I need to publish still. Uh, so if you are listening to this and I've interviewed you, please get in touch with me and tell me uh, that I, you would like me to publish your episode. Uh, and so I'm, I'd love it if you guys would follow us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher by searching for Crazy Wisdom. I'm also on Twitter and at Stuart Allsop, I, I, I. Have a great day and hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you. <laughs>